Psalm 62. We've been well prepared as we meditated on the, the text, the lyrics, as the tunes so powerfully forged these very themes that we're going to meditate even further in this morning into our hearts already. But music can be a profound thing, wouldn't you agree? Music can be a profound thing. And I'm not even thinking about its ability to to lift our spirits or to encourage us when we're downcast or discouraged. That alone will make my point for me, but I have something slightly different in mind. What I'm thinking of is the very way in which even the structure of music serves as a powerful statement maker about so many other realities in God's world. We might call it the analogy of music. For example, silence in music is utterly essential to beautiful music making. There was even a portion in the the offertory that was played, all praise to Him, right before the third verse began, or the final stanza, the final refrain, where there was a pause. Two beats. It's all it took, but it was perfect. It was space. My mother, a a piano teacher of 40-some-odd years, she, she has a borrowed phrase that she sometimes uses to teach her piano students, and she says this phrase. She says, silence speaks. Silence speaks. As a, as a phrase ends, and you're beautifully moving the music towards a resolution, before you build up or enter into a, do, a new refrain, there's a lift off the keys for just a moment, and then back into the new theme. And that silence is utterly essential to the whole of the piece. In fact, that, that skill of doing nothing, of being quiet, is in itself a significant contribution to the beauty that is to be in a particular piece of music. As a trombone player for most of my musical life, silence was a big part of my job. (laughs) Conductors loved, they they cringed a little bit when they knew the low brass section was about to enter. (laughs) So sometimes in, in orchestral pieces, there will be 200, 300 measures where we sit there one, two, three, four, two, two, three, four, fifty-six, two, three, four, fifty-seven, two, three, four. And that's, that's the nature of it. But if we're doing our job correctly, isn't that part of what contributes to the, the beauty and the glory of a good orchestra? Silence speaks. This observation from even the musical world translates into our lives. We'll sometimes say silence is golden. Young parents know this well. (laughs) Silence can be golden sometimes. Because we know there are times when just being quiet and refraining from speech is, is the very best option. Sometimes standing in awe, basking in, in amazement is the needful response. Sometimes silently quieting our souls in the promises of the one true God, choosing to place a a settled confidence in His ability to orchestrate the affairs of life 
and to place our faith in His power, in His love, in His promises. This is where our sovereign Lord wants us to be. Quiet. Psalm 62 is a psalm directed towards this end. It aims to quiet the noise of external opponents who desire to topple us while warning the faithful of the brevity of their lives, the folly of wealth, and the foolishness of the unbridled pursuit of pride and prestige. All that matters is that we trust God in every circumstance, for He is a fortress. He is a refuge like nothing else. That's the main point of Psalm 62, that we can trust God in all circumstances of life because He is a refuge like no other. So hear the words of God as we read together the psalm before us, Psalm 62. Follow along as I read the entire psalm. For God alone... My soul waits in silence. From Him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. Well, how long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O oh, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. A power belongs to God. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. As we seek to get our bearings on the, the layout and the organization of this psalm, there's several things we ought to, ought to know. Psalm 62 is a psalm of King David addressed to the choir master according to Jeduthun. Now we know from 1 Chronicles 16 that Jeduthun was one of three named choir masters appointed by David to lead public worship. But we don't know the exact connection of why this particular psalm was assigned to this particular man. Perhaps there was some musical expertise that David had in mind as a musician himself that he wanted to be employed. Perhaps there was some choral nature to be brought out in the antiphonal sort of back and forth and the repetition that is made clear in this psalm. Perhaps there was something, some unique personal reason why this theme was for him. We don't know. 
But this psalm finds its organization along a main idea, a main idea that begins in verses 1 and 2 and is repeated nearly verbatim midway through in verses 5 through 7. And it's said differently but with overlap in themes in the final tail end of the psalm in verse 11 and 12. So this main idea answers a few questions. It answers the question, where can salvation be found? It answers the question, is God truly a refuge? Is God truly alone, as the psalm says five times? Is He alone enough to be our refuge? And can God be trusted in every circumstance, even when evil assaults us? So perhaps this homemade graphic on the screen can help us a little bit. Perhaps this will put together the framework of the psalm in your mind. So imagine this repeated threefold support structure assuring us that indeed God is a trustworthy refuge and fortress for His people. In verses 3 and 4, Verses 1 and 2 lays a solid foundation. God is a a refuge. Repeat it again. Another layer of the foundation of this this central idea in the psalm. That it's it's really the, the channel right up the middle that everything is based upon. And then the capstone and wrapping up, tying up all the loose ends at the end of the psalm. Only does David deviate two separate times from this main idea in which he turns his attention outward towards the attackers in verses 3 and 4, speaking directly to them. And then he turns his attention to the faithful people of God in verses 8 through 10 to address them specifically and to challenge them directly. So perhaps this graphic is helpful to me. Maybe it can serve you as we see this and we, we put together the organization of this psalm. With this framework in mind, let's work together towards understanding the nature of this psalm. Before we move any further, would you just pray with me and ask God to do what none of us can do on our own, and that is to apply the holy, life-changing words of God to our very souls. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the hope of this psalm. There is no refuge outside of You worth giving ourselves to, and though one after another we are peppered with options of where we must find refuge. Give us insight through the power of Your Spirit, who You have promised will do work in us as the Word is enlivened and is made clear. We pray that it would be the Word alone that would change us. Give us soft hearts, Father. Make us willing to adjust and be leveled if necessary so we can be remade more into Christ's image. It's in His name we pray, amen. As we see the foundational layer, layer number one, we we see the call to find rest in the fortress in verse 1 and 2. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. This repeated, for God alone, has the strength of saying truly, indeed, There is no doubt here, not not a bit. God alone is the exclusive source of your refuge, of your fortress. 
of your hope. David begins by letting us know that his heart is resolved. God alone can most assuredly be trusted. Because this is true, the human soul can rest quietly in Him. As a bit of a qualifier, this kind of quietness mentioned here should not be understood as some sort of a transcendental state of, in which we, we empty our minds and the body escapes to some sort of a hypnotic trance or anything like that. Nothing like that. If anything, actually, it's a filling of the mind, not an emptying, a filling with the truth about the character of God. David shows salvation as coming from the Lord here. One can hardly say a truer sentence. Salvation comes from God. This is what Jonah came to realize as he was entombed in the belly of the great fish. Jonah 2.9. Finally, he's coming to his senses. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Oh, that he would have believed it by the end of his story. Salvation, in every sense, is something that originates from and flows from God alone. David continues, both, God is both our salvation as well as our rock and our fortress, and as will be mentioned in verse 7, our refuge. These images are some of David's favorite expressions. He uses them all over the Psalter as he writes of God's stability, his stable footing that he finds in God. I can't imagine too many of us have spent extended amounts of time in fortresses. Probably not. Perhaps on a, a visit here or there, we've, we've gone and we've walked through one. I remember as, we, as Pastor Miller and I visited uh, one of our partners in Lithuania, the Sienkiewiczes, we went through a couple different large and ancient castles. There's a reason why there are so many castles that still exist in the world. It's because they weren't made of straw. It's because the substance, the material that contributed to the structure as a whole is of such a nature that it's going to last, right? We think of even Windsor Castle in, in Britain built by William the Conqueror in 1070, still the, the oldest and the largest still-inhabited castle in the world. A thousand years. Can you imagine that? The nature of the material is enduring. It's solid. Its quality removes any fears of it being demolished or easily overtaken. This is the Lord to David. This is the Lord in so many ways, immovable, impenetrable when attacked, safe. He concludes verse 2 by stating, He will not be greatly shaken. Why? Well, how can he possess this confidence that he's not going to be greatly shaken, even by the opposition that we're going to, he's going to describe in the next few verses? because his security is rock solid in the character of God. 
These are the meditations and the self-exhortations of King David. He's preaching, oh my soul, oh my soul, these things are true. My soul, believe this. What you see in these first two verses are the anchors to his spiritual sanity. He is able to look headlong towards his attackers only because he's tethered to the Lord, who is his rock and is his salvation. And in this sense, he is able to rest. He is able to wait in silence. We see in verses 3 and 4 a word to the attackers. We see the attack from the enemy as David turns his attention from speaking of what he knows to be true about God, directly exhorting his own soul. He turns his attention as if he's speaking directly to them, as if these opponents can hear him. David asks, how long do you plan to keep this up, guys? How, how long do you plan to attack me? The idea of battering him is, is literally the verb for murder. So this is the level of opposition that David is facing. Plots on his life. Perhaps these attackers, whoever they may be, see David as this leaning wall or a tottering fence just primed to be taken out. Well, they clearly know that David sits as the Lord's anointed in a high position, as the text reads, and it doesn't seem to matter whatsoever to them. Whether these were defectors from within or enemies from without Israel, we're not sure, but they don't seem to have any moral restraints on their plans to topple David because of his position of authority, God-given authority. An authority that in many ways at this point in God's dealings with His people represents God Himself, and they don't care. There is a steely sort of brazen pride and arrogance at work here. In other words, the phrase, all's fair in love and war, is certainly the creed they're operating by. And what is their description? Well, they find great pleasure. So where is their pleasure? They find great pleasure in falsehood, in the art of deception. That's where their joy is. They are hypocrites. They're charlatans. They're imposters. They're sneaky men who may bless David with their mouths on occasion, but inwardly they curse him. That is their state. This category of folk is, on a human level, the reason for this psalm, you might say. God is our refuge and fortress, and we ought to find our rest in Him. But even when we're victims? Yes, David argues. Yes. Even when I'm being hunted like deer in the woods by people who want to literally assassinate me? Yes, God is your fortress, your refuge. God has not left the room and told you to figure it out. He is a rock and a fortress for those who must trust Him even when we feel the most vulnerable. Place yourselves in David's shoes for a moment. Put yourself in his position. 
feel what he's feeling at this particular moment, knowing that death threats are coming regularly. And think, how does this translate to me? Or maybe ask yourself, have, have you been sinned against, as David was, by another person who, who seemed to only want to make your life miserable? Have you been on the receiving end of that? Perhaps a, a coworker who's really jealous of that promotion that you just got, and they just love to pepper you with snide comments about how they really should have been in that position, they really should have been elevated, and you're just failing right and left, and they remind you of that regularly. Perhaps as a child or a teenager, you have a sibling that just despises you and tries to get you in trouble all the time, and they celebrate every little thing you do wrong. Or on an even more serious note, perhaps you were abused or mistreated at one point or another in your life by someone in your life. Setting aside all the obvious, practical, and needful considerations around one's safety and all that goes into that, where's your heart nonetheless? You're not the first to be sinned against. You've been sinned against, perhaps grievously, but it is here that this psalm wants you to reckon with your source of refuge. Where are you going? You go somewhere. Where are you going? Has the sinful oppression of others sent you sprinting after refuge in all the wrong places? Or are you running back to the fortress of your faith? Or perhaps you're on the other side of these scenarios that I've just mentioned. Have, have you sinned against other people, perhaps in, in underhanded ways, similar to the deceptive methods of David's opponents? Search your heart. You may find that your deception has deceived not only others, but yourself into believing that you're a member of the family of God when indeed you may not be a member of the family of God. While this psalm will end with a call for you to reckon with how your life squares with God's call to find your refuge in Him, make no mistake about it. Refuge in God isn't just for good boys and girls who keep their lives squeaky clean. He welcomes every sinner, everyone who turns from his or her sin in utter disgust for the treasonous nature of their sins against a good and loving God. You are welcome to approach Him in humility and repentance. So there's hope for us all, wherever we fall on the spectrum. We see once more the reiteration of this this initial theme, providing another layer on the foundation of, of David's main point here, to find our rest in the refuge. The psalmist returns to his theme in verses 1 and 2 in order to sound it forth again. And it is for God alone that his soul waits in silent expectation. You can almost see the king of Israel pacing his bedroom here, catechizing, teaching, instructing his own soul in what he should believe. 
as he toggles back and forth between the circumstances of life and how scary they are and the truths about God. As he moves back and forth, you can almost hear him, listen, self, listen, believe this. Do you hear me? In God alone, I'm going to rest. In God alone, I can hope. Self, He's your rock. He's your fortress. He's your salvation. He's your glory. He's your refuge. Self, do you hear this self? (laughs) He's speaking truth to His own soul. And by means of this repeated theme, David steadies his heart in the Lord. Sometimes silent, quiet rest in God is not us before a fireplace with a cup of coffee, just enjoying a a beautiful landscape outside. Oftentimes it's the fruit of hard-won battles, particularly within our own souls, as we cling to find hope and refuge in God. We see in verses 8 through 10 a a word to the faithful as David leaves his theme for a moment and, and, and speaks and applies it outward toward the people of God. Verse 8 represents a climactic moment in this psalm as David shifts his focus outward, not towards his attackers, but to God's people. And he counsels them this way, trust in God at all times, O people, Trust Him. He's told you of His personal story and what's what's going on in His own life. And now He's saying, you must all do this. God's people, trust in Him at all times. Pour out your hearts before Him. Why? Because God is a refuge. If God is to be trusted at all times, that means there is never a moment in your life in which he cannot be trusted. Let that sink in. That alone is massive, massive, massive to your spiritual growth. There's never a moment in your day where he cannot be trusted. He never vacations from perfect oversight and lordship over your life and the lives of all he's created, his world. Nothing that enters your life is ever slipping through the cracks and missing his purview. He sees it all. He's over all. See also, though, that knowing that God is trustworthy at all times does not negate the expectation that we should pour our hearts out before him. Let that sink in. And what does this trust look like? Jerry Bridges writes in his book, Trusting God, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on God's promises and to cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Back to the Word, that oftentimes solace, peace, rest in God is the fruit of hard-won battles. Bridges goes on to say, prayer is the most tangible expression of trust in God. I'll say that again. Prayer 
is the most tangible expression of our trust in God. Do you trust God? Then you'll be a praying person. This was a very convicting thought for me. I believe God is sovereign. Oh, I believe that. He's over all. I, I trust that with all my heart. I believe that He will bring me through all situations for my ultimate good and His glory. I'll teach that. I'll counsel people that way. I'll actually believe that. I do. But when I see prayerlessness, prayerlessness in my life, I've got to, I'm forced to conclude I'm not very good at trusting God. This is my rightful conclusion. And as Bridges says, I've likely lapsed into a sort of pious fatalism. Whatever happens, well, I'll roll with it, I suppose. God's in control. But my trust was defective in some way because it didn't pour itself out in prayer to God. May God forgive me and us, perhaps, for this misapplication of His sovereignty. So prayer reveals that we are indeed trusting God. I wonder how many of us live with a crisis Christianity sort of mentality. And by that, I mean the kind of Christianity that waits for disaster and meltdown moments before we pour out our hearts before God. And then once things are sort of buttoned up, we wait another five years for the next disaster, and then we hit our knees and we pray, and we just sort of live life that way. We forget who to run to. We forsake our refuge. Well, God is to be trusted. Whether you have people strategizing for how they'd like to assassinate you, like David, or if you struggle cleaning your room, our refuge is God, whether in times of great peril or in times of small, petty frustrations. May we seek Him at all times. These are the sorts of truths and realities that really undergird even the foundation of why we seek to give ourselves as a church toward prayer. Many of us were able to even do this uh, Friday and Saturday and to, to seek the Lord, to recognize we can't go forward as a church taking the gospel to the lost and to this community, representing Him as the faithful people of God. We can't do this unless it is the habit of our hearts to pour our hearts out before Him. We see in verses 9 and 10 a challenge to be on guard against rival refuges, rivals. And what are those? What's the competition look like? Well, a few examples are given to us in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, it is those of low estate. It is the common people who are compared to a breath. It is those of high estate, the cultural elites, the who's who, the rich and famous. These are seen as a delusion. They are not as they appear to be. And is there ever a truer reality and statement about that class? 
how many well-known icons in society appeared to have it all together only to later reveal in a 2020 interview or something that their life was an absolute wreck, that there was no happiness and that they had hit rock bottom. They're utterly miserable. What they portray for the world to see is not what reality actually is. If both the unimpressive, brief lives of commoners and the delusional lives of the uppity-ups were both weighed together, what does David say? They'd be lighter than a breath of air. What is meant by this statement here? Well, it's, it's the very opposite of the Hebrew understanding of glory. What is glory? Well, the idea conveys this sense of weightiness, of heaviness, that the glory of God has such weight and glory that nothing can compare to it. it it's, it's heavier than all. It's more significant than all. It is the great thing that the world ought to orient itself towards, the glory and majesty of God. And the very polar opposite is that which is lighter than a breath. It has no substance. It's here for a moment and it's gone. That's David's point. Prestige and popularity are vain, lacking in substance and weight. Verse 10 adds nuance here. For we are told to stonewall the desire to become a person of high estate by wicked means, namely extortion. And what is meant by that? Well, the brutal oppressing and exploiting of people to get to the top. The dog-eat-dog, I'll trick you and I'll be as sneaky and sinister as I need to to get where I want to be. Extortion. Even if riches increase through perfectly legitimate means, David says, do not fall prey to the allurement of an alternate refuge. Do not set your heart upon them. Why? Because they can very easily become your Lord and your place of rest. To which so naturally leads Jesus to say, the refuge of wealth can lead someone to it, it being harder than a, to pass through the eye of a needle for that kind of person, a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, than for a rich, complacent person to enter the kingdom of God. It's such a snare. Does your heart this morning look to money, to prestige, influence, who you know, size of the house that you have, kind of the car that you drive, that sort of thing? Do you look there for security, for identity? Apparently, this is a nasty tendency because David makes a big deal of it here, and it's been around for a long, long time. It's a problem, and we need to admit it. Not just because it kind of sours friendships when, you know, people get together and, and it turns relationships into these competitive races for the top, not just for that, but because running after these weightless pursuits that have no meaning and substance to them reveal your refuge. They set on display what you're actually pursuing. And it has no glory. It's not God. 
the Lord will not simply find His place among the many security blankets in your life. He is jealous that He and He alone is where you run. We see sort of these capstone truths here in verses 11 and 12. Finally, the the psalm summarizes its teaching in these last two verses as it points to two realities, two pillars that that bring, bring the psalm to a close. Verse 11 writes, once this and, and, and twice that, sort of a, a poetical manner of expression uh, prevalent in Hebrew wisdom literature that points to, hey, a final word's coming on the matter, okay? The ESV makes this just a little bit difficult. The Hebrew literally reads, one thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. So, the idea, for lack of stretching this out, God has spoken once, and He said two things. God spoke one time. Two important things. It's the idea. And they are this. Power and steadfast love belongs to God. Don't miss that. Power and steadfast love belongs to God. And secondly, the Lord will repay all those according to their deeds. The Lord will recompense. He will reward all those according to their deeds. So the limitless power of God sets covenantal steadfast love upon sinners like us. But know that God will reward each man and woman according to their deeds. And as the Scriptures bear out consistently, places like Matthew 12 and James 5, or James 1 and 2 and John 5 and Revelation 20 and many other texts, the final judgment will use the deeds of every person to expose the substance of their faith. This is the teaching of Scripture. Our current study through Romans clarifies so much on this tension. In Romans 2.6, we read what is essentially an identical phrase to Psalm 62, He will render to each one according to his works. Apostle Paul continues to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. And for those who are self-seeking, who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There is a future for those who, like David's opponents, pursue murder and deception. And it is not the kingdom of God. It is wrath and fury from the very hand of God. But for those like the faithful in Psalm 62 who recognize the folly of pride and wealth and resist its seductive power, there will be eternal life with God forever. Now, you might be tempted to say, well, if a sinner is condemned for his evil deeds, then he must be saved by his good deeds. That does not correlate. Not even a little. This whole psalm has been about what? Salvation belongs to God, not you. Salvation is the Lord's. What we must believe, though, is the true connection between our hearts and our deeds. We do what we do because we love what we love, and the heart fixes on that which it loves. Jesus tells a group of upset Jewish leaders in Matthew 15, He explains for them, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. 
And this defiles a person. And out of the heart come evil thoughts and murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And where do they come from? The heart. And so it is that our hearts are exposed in every deed we do. Not just the deeds that people see we could add. The question is, are we as believers living our lives in Christ, in Him, living in step with the truths of the gospel? Since God knows our hearts, does He see a growing hatred for sin and a growing appreciation and appropriation of the gospel? As we pull together the full scope of God's revelation, it is faith in the blood of the crucified Son of God, the Lamb that was slain for our sins. This, what we do with that, separates all people. Belief or disbelief on this matter either ushers us into the presence of God or condemns us to eternal punishment. So this truth need not paralyze us as we conclude this psalm with fear, but it should cause us to be all the more grateful for the refuge that we have in God and the fact that He gave His Son to ransom our sinful, wicked souls. So in many ways, Psalm 62 preaches the gospel as clearly as any sermon, as clearly as any Scripture text. If you fear that you may be on this well-worn path toward God's wrath on account of your sin, would you heed the Scripture's call this morning to repent and to trust for salvation in none but Christ who bore the awful load of your sins on His cross? so that you could know rest and hope and peace and joy and forgiveness. Call out to Him and be saved. We take great delight in knowing this is what unifies us as a church. This is foundational to our life together, is what we believe about the gospel. And we want nothing more than to grow our family. Christian brothers and sisters, let's come to terms with the fierce battle that rages, though attempting to keep us from finding security in God alone. Even as we discuss this psalm together in our home groups this afternoon, let's ask God's Spirit to, to, to root out all these rivals that occupy His rightful place in our hearts. To the discouraged and downtrodden this morning, receive the hope offered by King David in this psalm. The Lord knows your trials, every one of them, physical suffering, relational distress, financial pains, feelings, spiritual failure in a particular area. Maybe you're reaping consequences of foolish choices and it's just really hard, but He's calling you to trust Him no matter what the future holds. Remember His power and His steadfast love. Don't forget it. He will lead you to safety as you trust and you pray. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him because God is a refuge for us. Would you stand with me? And as we close this morning, 
we want to do as David did before us here. Silence our hearts. Resolve. Speak to your soul for a few moments. Instruct your soul and say, soul, I am running to all kinds of wrong places of refuge. Help me by faith to believe that the Lord is everywhere I should be. He is where I should pursue my security. Inspect your heart and ask Him in the quietness of this moment to lead you. Our God, we're making the deliberate effort right now to be quiet, to silence our hearts, to hear from You, and to trust. Lord, You know it's hard, but the reward is so great. Help us to see You more clearly. Help us to pour our hearts out in prayer as an expression of our trust in You. And may we cling to You as our refuge. In Him we pray. Amen.